Today's show is brought to you by Rich Nutrients, New Zealand's premier provider of nutrient-dense whole food products. One of my current favourites is their organic beef and turmeric bone broth powder. And the reason for that is it's so convenient, you don't have to go through the whole process of actually making bone broth. And it's super tasty. If you visit their page, richnutrients.co.nz, click onto the shopping page and you'll find a Best Me tab. Under this tab you'll find all of the products that I use and recommend. Now as a Best Me listener, you have the opportunity to receive 10% off all orders over $30, which is a pretty decent discount. All you have to do is enter the Best Me discount code at the checkout, which in one word is Best Me, all in capitals. I hope you enjoy their products as much as I do. You can also find me at HealthFit Collective, which is exactly how it sounds, a collective of health and fitness practitioners, including physiotherapy, psychology, nutrition, we have movement coaches, personal trainers, massage, and much more. Our goal is to guide your dreams to reality, and we do this both within the club and online, offering tailored health plans, small group training, specialist services, corporate wellness, and education. So please go along and visit the page healthfitcollective.co.nz to find out more. You can also book a free 30-minute consultation with no strings attached. Welcome to Best Me Radio. I'm your host, Carl Hammington, and I talk to experts in many areas, including movement, psychology, nutrition, as well as other inspiring people who have done extraordinary things, all in an attempt to provide you with the information inspiration and tools that will empower you to step into the best version of yourself. Welcome back Best Me community to another episode of Best Me Radio and today we have a good friend of mine, a work colleague and co-founder of HealthFit Collective, Greg Wrightford. Greg and I actually went through uni together, Uh, we worked together at our first gym and we became good mates through the process, um, sharing some pretty insane workouts ones that uh, we wouldn't dare put any of our clients through because uh, they were that crazy, often left uh, the gym in a puddle of sweat and quivering down the stairs. Um, We also had some good social times, uh, ones that I won't share on this podcast, (laughs) but I guess we connected as we both shared similar values and a similar vision of where we thought our industry needed to go. And this has led us to formally working together and creating our own little awesome gym uh, with Mishy and Theo, the Reverend. Um, I don't even like calling it the gym um, because it's so much more than that and we have some pretty exciting things in the wings. Um, I will quickly mention that our corporate wellness programs uh, have been launched and they are pretty damn awesome, if I do say so myself. And we've created a really unique program and system um, that's yielded some amazing results and has some really good feedback. Um, And it allows us to access you right throughout New Zealand and even internationally. So please go along and check out healthfitcollective.co.nz for more info on that. It's pretty exciting stuff. Now back to the episode. This is an awesome and inspiring set of stories and it'll really help you understand who Greg is and why he has done so well in life. Um, And you may end up uh, asking yourself, you know, what are my excuses for not getting what I want in life? Uh, Some of these stories are just... uh, pretty insane. So please enjoy this one um, as it's full of wisdom. Um, Get your notepads out to take down some of the gold nuggets. Greg Wrightford is a strength and conditioning coach, a business owner and the founder of HealthFit Collective, an entrepreneur, a living experiment and most importantly a father and husband. Greg has trained hundreds of people from athletes to seniors, from the unhealthy to the ultra marathon runner. Greg has noticed we can all suffer from similar issues but the key is to approach the plan for improvement differently with each individual. Greg's mission is to help solve these issues for people, and in his view, there's nothing more satisfying than helping people discover and develop their true potential. Welcome to the show, my good friend, Greg Wrightford. Cheers, Carl. Thanks thanks for having me. Oh, it's going to be a bit of fun here, I think, today. So... (laughs) Um, what a lot of people don't realize about you, Greg, is you've had a pretty interesting uh, upbringing. You've had plenty of uh, experiences, both uh, mentally and physically. Um, yeah. I don't think I've met someone with so much um, probably drive and fortitude. So that's kind of what I want to talk to you about uh, today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't want to talk you up too much, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to struggle up to this after this. Yeah, that's the hardest. So... Um, First of all, Gregor, could you please give us um, a little bit of an insight as to what your life sort of looked like um, growing up in South Africa and 
what drove you to make health and fitness such a big part of your life? Um, yeah, well, it's interesting because I've actually, uh, I'm one of those people who um, ruminates a lot, but I guess ruminate is the wrong word. I guess thinks a lot about this stuff. Um, I drive in from where I live in Greytown, which is about an hour out of Wellington quite regularly, and I have a lot of time to think. And so I always think about where I've come from. I guess a lot of people do, their roots, um, and and how that influenced me. And I guess um, South Africa is an interesting place. It's sort of – it's one of those places where – Life is a bit harder, I think, uh, certainly than in, in New Zealand. New Zealand's amazing, right? It's it's a, almost a bit of a utopia compared. Mm. Uh, whereas in South Africa, is, is, um, it's an amazing place. There's a lot of contrast. Um, it's beautiful. Um, there's beautiful people there. Uh, amazing. You can have amazing experiences, but then that's obviously contrasted with it's it's had a long history or its only history has basically been built upon bloodshed really and, and violence. Mm. So um you and that gets bred into the people. Um and you know, South Africa was founded in the early sixteen hundreds and um started through slavery through the Dutch and then the French and then the English and it was all about who had power over who. I guess, like in the rest of the world. And, you know, you when you're born into a, a culture like that, it's sort of, um, I guess it gets bred in you quite early to have to be um, almost look at things in a black and white fashion or in yeah. a really linear way in order to to handle what's around you, which is, mm-hmm. which is other people the same way. So there's less compromise. Yeah. And less yeah. understanding, um, and in some ways that's good because it drives you to do certain things. But in some ways, it's what I've learned being in New Zealand is um, that can be really bad too because you feel you have to do it all on your own all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a burden which a lot of South Africans have to carry. Really, yeah, yeah. Um, so. uh, just out of interest. How, did you feel like, you know, growing up in South Africa as well, it is a little bit harder to, to stand out? Do you feel like you really have to work to, um, you know, to achieve something great in South Africa? Um, in some ways, maybe maybe because there's more people. Um, mm. there's, they have a population of around 50 million. Um, although, you know, and, and I guess everyone – Everyone is doing that there. Um, it's easy. You're easily replaced in South Africa mm. as well. Um, there's no real saying to someone else the other day, there's no real human resources issues over there, really. You, if, if you've got a problem with an, your employer, you either get over that problem or you get shipped out. Um, so um, in New Zealand, it's it's quite different, right? The, the powers and the in the employee and so so you you tend to be looked after with the people around you the problem is in new zealand i'd say in some ways it's sometimes even harder to stand out um because of this whole uh tall poppy yeah and it's and it's you know it's funny because i sort of heard other people talking about it never quite saw it but i guess as i've got older and with what i've done and and certainly w- with what you've done, as you become more successful in in your particular field, you start to see the naysayers pop out, um, and you know you're seeing it on social media. You see you see all sorts of stuff, and you think, wow, people there are actually those sorts of people out there who really do not want you to succeed, or they try to pull you back down. So I. I would say in some ways it's a bit tougher in New Zealand to sometimes stand out because you've got that barrier, that constant Mm. unwillingness to share information or team up or um, unite with someone else or um, work hard for the common good so that you both succeed sort of ideals. Whereas in South Africa, I I guess there's a little bit of that, but it's more 
competitive. It's a little bit closer to the US where you celebrate winning. Yep. You don't celebrate the underdog. You yep. you know, you celebrate the wins. You you celebrate the hard work that gets you there and you certainly wouldn't want to take away from anyone's successes if right. you do. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's really good. I was, I, the reason I ask that is because of your obvious um, your obvious drive. I'm just uh, trying to get to the bottom of where that came from, but I think that sort of answered that. Um, now back to your movement journey. So when did that begin, or when did your sort of health journey, I guess, begin? Was it something you've always uh, grew, grown up valuing, or is it something that's developed over a period of time? Yeah, I think I think for for me, um, I think some going back to that. Thing about drive and um, and where I got that from, it's probably started in the same place as as where my value around health and fitness came from too. I um, grew up in a family where um, my father, as a boy, he was a lieutenant colonel um, in the South African Army. He was in charge of about nine or ten thousand uh, soldiers at that point. And so he had to really get them ready for armed service. And so he currently at the stage, they had to get these people ready um, and they could only really get people sort of battle ready with about 13% of the soldiers. And mm. dad was able to actually um, get something like 85% ready. And wow. so – so he he was a a very strong I guess natural leader, um, and sort of thrived in that in that world, um, and I guess uh, that's exceptional in one sense. The, I guess the problem was for us as kids, um, I've got a brother and a sister as well, is having a father like that um, in I guess sort of his prime and in that in that sort of role meant that we we probably had to sacrifice a lot. Um, my dad has obviously softened quite a lot more in his old age um, now that he's no longer doing any of that stuff, being retired. But as a kid, he was really hard on us, yep. really, really, really hard. High expectations. And high expectations, but also um, because most of his world was uh, around discipline, Yeah. Uh, and getting stuff done, I guess, you know, you could say it's a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah. We, mom was, yeah, mom was sort of the loving soft side. And so we could go to her, but then you sort of didn't mess with dad. And then it's only as you sort of get older, you tend to um, get on with, with that parent a bit better. I think a lot of people have those, those parents where there's one softer parent, one more caring one, and one that that pushes that that child to to really um, challenge themselves and and not give them too much leeway. So yeah. that's where that drive came, and I realised, you know, I think back there were some things definitely that I'm sure Dad regrets, and I regret as well with how I grew up. He was, I reckon, too hard. Yeah. Um, and I reckon he would, he would actually think oh, I shouldn't have done that. Yep. Um, yep. But it is what it is, mm -hmm. and I. It's it made did, you who you are. Yeah, it's made me who I am, regardless. Yep. And and I've got to pay homage to that. And yep. um, whether he intentionally did it or not, that's the person I am today. Mm. The same value around uh, health came out of that, though. Yep. And so I um, pushed myself as a child. I used to um, – I remember Dad saying that I entered a 100-meter um, sprint competition and I used to um, – knowing that this competition was come up, coming up, I used to meet with a couple of kids before school and we just used to play a, a game where we used to run around these two cricket pictures um, as fast and hard as we could – and the game was whoever won the game was the person who could last the longest. Hmm. So, and we used to do that every day of the year, basically. So every morning we would meet <laughs> half an hour before school, still in our school uniform, and we basically would line up just the three of us. Yep. And we would just 
run out healthily there. And so at, after about a year of that, we entered this athletics competition and I sort of, for whatever reason, I didn't know how good I was. I just, that's just, I did that for fun. Yeah. Uh, don't ask me why you do something <laughs> like that for fun, but that's what we used to do. Yeah. And so I we did this 100-meter race and I sort of got to halfway and realized I was way ahead of all the other kids. And so mm. mom and dad said I waited for them to catch up um, <laughs> until we were all level so we could cross the line together because I felt oh, like I was quite empathetic. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, interesting, right? And mm. um, But anyway, I realized then that I was pretty good at running. And so – and then I would just enter anything running-based, whether it was cross-country or sprinting or anything. Mm. And I think from – right from the age of five or six, I just loved the fact that you could just, um, you could just, you know, almost express yourself through, through movement like running, because yeah. I guess it is linear. It's very, again, it is very black and white. You're yeah. going from A to B. Um, you're giving everything. It's an, it's a form of movement where you can give everything and mm. speed everything. And so, you you could leave it all out there um yeah and and the the work you put in generally pays off right yeah generally and then what whatever you couldn't do you could you knew you couldn't do because you'd given it all yeah i really sort of liked that feeling as a as a young kid it could have been maybe another sport but that's that's what we did so then um i guess over the years that there was a, a medium in which i could do all that and i guess it was driven partly by that stage having family members around me who definitely were not looking after themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then that just, that almost hardens your resolve thinking, yeah. so man, I, I don't the, want to end up like yeah, this. Letting the fear guide you as well. As the, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's great. So, um, so people that know you, uh, yeah. I'm not sure if they understand, you've got a little bit of a history in boxing as well. Yeah. So yeah. when did that start? And what has boxing taught you? Um, so I, when I was 16, I used to, I got all right at playing rugby. I was sort of trialing for the first 15 um, team at about 16, 17. In New Zealand? In New Zealand. By that stage, we had moved to New Zealand. And I um, remember running along this, this um, pitch and I actually managed to put my foot in a little pothole or something or a divot in the ground and my knee went back the other way and I um, snapped my cruciate ligament and tore my meniscus cartilage pretty badly. Anyway, long story short, um, sort of the really quick explosive running days were over after that and I had to spend the next sort of two years um, because back in those days um, the surgeries were as good as they could be, but they weren't what they are today. And um, it just took a long time to be able to get, um, you know, yourself back up and moving properly. So I had to start looking for other things. And so by the time I left school, sort of 17, 18, I was really looking again for that medium in which you now could really push yourself really, really hard. And, um, and then naturally I, I think, um, we went and watched, what was his name? Billy, um, uh, there's yeah, a, there's lower a hut there. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Yeah. Yes. So it was Billy Graham. <laughs> actually, I went to a local hall in lower hut outside mm-hmm. of Wellington and Billy Graham was talking. And he was putting on a demonstration and he was talking about how boxing had changed his life. And sort of he was doing it at a boxing gym run by a Russian guy called Herbert Nelson. And um, that was his English name anyway. His Russian name we couldn't even pronounce. <laughs> um, so he just called himself Herbert. Herb. And, um, so anyway, um, he sort of inspired us. So then we got enrolled into this uh, boxing club. And I remember on the first day, I was, um, you know, arrived sort of thinking, oh, well, I don't know what we're going to do. And Herbert, um, being this um, national Russian boxing champion <laughs> in this day, and in those days, by the way, just a short um, tangent, is in Russia, 
in order to find out their top team, he had come from, they start apparently with something like a million boxes. <laughs> and what they do is they have knockout tournaments. And what they do is they slowly but surely um, have like a knockout tournament where it halves every time. So they end up with on a national level, 500,000, 250,000, <laughs> 125,000. Anyway, he made it to the final hundred. And, um, and what they do is they have different weight categories. Sounds very so, Spartan. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> but boxing is one of their national sports, one of yeah. their main national sports. So, you know, they live and die for it. So anyway, so that's the background he had come from. And I remember that first session showing up for boxing practice and he gave me a, a basketball and he made me sit down away from this wall about four or five meters in a sit-up position. And he said, right, I want you to sit up and throw this basketball against the wall 400 times. <laughs> um, and he didn't know my fitness level. He didn't know anything. So then I got started, right? And it must have taken me, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes to get through these 400 sit-ups. And, uh, you know, you had to uh, touch the ball over the top of your head, sit up and throw it against the wall. Anyway, by the resilience training there. (laughs) Totally. By the time I stood up, I couldn't stand up. I was staying in the flex position. (laughs) I could not stand up. And then I remember him saying, right, you've done well. Um, We'll see you Wednesday. So, um, and I remember when I came in Wednesday, he either told me that week or in the future, and he said he did that on purpose to find out whether – you had the mustard in order to just do what he asked you to do in order to come back again. So um, he, this is what he did with people. <laughs> he, he used to mentally try break them so he didn't have to teach any, any of the weak-minded, so to speak. He only wanted tough-minded people. Um, and so he used to come up with these crazy tests. I remember one was um, doing box jumps Um about mid thigh height, you you had to do two hundred in a row without stopping, and then go into something like eight rounds of sparring. <laughs> and every round wow. went into was with a fresh, with a new person. But that was straight after doing the two hundred box jumps, and the whole point was just to see whether you had the mustard, whether you could last. So I guess um, it's almost stupid training, crazy training, but really appealed to me yep. um, because you could see why, right? Like mm. I come from that background, from that culture, and then who do I meet is a Russian guy who probably comes from a similar culture. So naturally the values are going to appeal, right? Yep. And then, yeah, just after that, after a couple of years, had my first fight, um, which was a against, funnily enough, um, I was middleweight. Yeah. Um, and at the time, my very first fight was against a middleweight um, Golden Gloves champion. <laughs> That's a pretty uh, pretty tough uh, start. And he had dropped down, I heard later, from the next weight division down um, sort of for the day. Um, I was his fight, who had never had a fight before, and he... Um, knocked me down, I think, three times in the first round. Um, and um, I think maybe we win an, another round, but I after I think I got knocked down four times, it was just a technical knockout. Yep. Um, and so that was my introduction to competitive boxing. So <laughs> I, I must have had a few more fights, but um, quickly learned, although I had the speed and I had the agility, I probably didn't have the chin for it. Yeah. Um, so I could attack all right, but boy, oh boy, if I got hit back, I sort of didn't know where I was. So um, slowly but surely over time, it started to click that um, although I loved everything about boxing and what it gave me, I I didn't enjoy um, getting beaten up. And I remember distinctly one night it happened really badly where – I'd been put through one of these tests with the box jumps and then I was probably two weeks out from a fight and there were these two big Islander guys um, who were fresh and I was made to fight 
them alternately for something like eight to ten rounds. And um, I, um, all I can remember doing is waking up in um, one of the arms, and he is he was holding me off the ground, but I had obviously been sort of knocked out. Yeah. And um, I just was shocked that it happened. I was at the peak of my powers, so to speak, and I remember going home and looking in the mirror, and I had these deep, dark sort of purple rings under my eyes, and I was gone from overtraining, and mm. I uh, remember that week stumbling up and down stairs, dropping coffee cups, and I must have been pretty concussed mm. looking back. And I remember that week deciding I'm done. I, 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 this is, I can see where it was going. Yep. And I didn't want to be a 45 or 50 year old, um, not being able to know his own name. So I, that's yep. when I still enjoyed the fitness, but thought, no way. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I can imagine um, you would have taken a few life lessons from those experiences as well um, in terms of, you know, resilience. Um, that must be a big one um, in terms of, uh, you know, being having that ability to get up again, despite being probably at your physical, um, you're physically worse and mentally worse after being knocked down multiple times. Um, yeah. But yeah, is there anything else that, or am I, am I on the money there? Yeah. And uh, there's something about um, boxing. I, I remember at the time, I remember um, seeing something on ESPN and they said that boxing was, the hardest sport in the world and I remember totally agreeing with that I think you're on your own it's not just physical it's emotional you physically you get beaten down mm. and you you feel I mean talk about a confidence um reducer you know like you sort of <laughs> You're on all fours on the ground, wondering <laughs> who you are. You know, you you're literally getting beaten up if you if you don't. And I think, man, that teaches you to only back yourself. You can't. There's no one else to there's look no room at. for doubt. There's no room for doubt. You're putting it again. It's that whole medium. You're just putting it all out there. Mm. You are who you are. You are the you are the um, make the standard or you don't. Yep. But at least you know where you lie. At least you know where you lie. And there's yeah. no. It's a reality check. It's the ultimate reality check, I think. Just a quick, uh, it's a bit, bit of a side question here, but what do you feel about um, competition conditioning versus um, non-competition conditioning? I mean, you know, those sparring sessions and training sessions versus actually jumping into the ring. Um, mm. How do you feel like, is there, is there much of a difference between the two in terms of mentally and physically? Because I know when I've competed in different sports, I've noticed a, a, a real difference and I've had to really work at that mental game in terms of jumping into the ring. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the most classic thing in any sport if you speak to anyone in high-performance sport um, in a coaching role or life advisor role or something like that. You know, how many times have you heard the story of an athlete having all the tools <laughs> not being able to transfer it in competition, right? Now... Um, that must only be a psychological barrier. Yep. That it's if they've got all the tools to do something, and then they're why aren't they delivering? Yeah, why aren't they delivering it? Um, and yeah, so I think I think that's a real common issue. And I think in boxing, you get these coaches who go either one way or the other. Um, yeah. They they over spar, um, and and I didn't come from a club like that, but. I mean, you. I still hear people saying, oh, we spar three or four times a week. I would say that's way too much. Yeah. What happens if you're getting slightly concussed yeah. in even one of those sessions? Yeah. Does that mean you need three weeks off and you won't be taking three weeks off? So I think um, the way, I mean, and you can see it with the way that the All Blacks train, they're quite, they're quite good. They, if you, in their training sessions, they're replicating match pay, uh, play. Yeah. Um, those circumstances, but with all the protective measures, yeah. so that they so that they you still need the same skills and attributes, but you're not getting damaged. Yeah, I think that's what boxing needs. I think the problem Pro with probably a lot of sports, to be honest. Totally, yeah. totally. I mean, uh, the problem with boxing is you know the, I don't think it's enough gameplay mm. with the same principles, 
And I don't think there's enough um, light sparring where yeah. where you um, you're padded up, but also you all you do is you just work on distance control yeah. and all those other activity and yeah, absolutely. Mm. But but I think these the problem is is in the sport there's that ego, so yeah. it's a little bit like okay, let's fight, let's yeah. fight, let's fight. And I think it's too mean to people. I think it's, you know, you're not allowing for personal issues that they have in their life or, um, you know, you're not properly understanding that person. So just to throw them in the fire all the time is, again, it's that whole mentality of, well, if you don't get burnt, then great. But then one out of 10 people will get burnt and probably quit the sport. So. I mean, I know we've had some pretty in-depth discussions actually with delivered, delivered presentations on um, training smarter rather than harder. Um, mm. But before we get to that, I want you to talk people through uh, your insane journey uh, to the Sahara Desert Ultra Endurance Marathon. Yeah, yeah. Well, it <laughs> Including was... your broken neck. <laughs> just was... just a slight detour. It was, it was a, a, um, an in in reflection an amazing time um it was um i did it with a, another guy william Takona, who um who is also in his in his younger days was a pretty accomplished athlete as well mm, very well-rounded yeah. Eh? Yeah. yeah well-rounded yeah um and yeah we so we decided we were going for a run one day and willie and myself um i think he I, I broached the topic to him and said, hey, you know, we should – I was thinking, you know, I saw this thing on TV. I think it would be pretty amazing if we entered this – this um, what they call the Marathon de Sable, which is the Marathon of the Sands. And um, he – we sort of kept on running, and then, that, and then a week later we were running, and he said, you know what, um, let's do it. Let's, let's enter. So – we decided over the next couple of years we'll put together a few races that sort of challenged us and we came up with sort of um, a couple marathons and then something a little more intermediate like a 75K and then something like a 100K. Um, and so when you apply for these big races, what you have to do is sort of – it's not like a – it is similar to like a CV. You have to sort of – you can enter – a race like that, I think, with not too much experience, but they don't like you to. Yep. Um, Probably more for safety re- uh, measures. Totally, totally. And the point is you've got to have, through those experiences, sort of honed what you're good at, what you need to focus on, you know, and been through it to know what you're in for. And so we did this over a couple of years. And then I remember we were probably about three months out from this race and I decided to go at the time I was right into my mountain biking as well and um, decided on a Friday night to go for a quick mountain bike. And at that stage, I was riding a lot of advanced and expert tracks, um, which I was doing all right at the time. And what I did was um, I went down one of these tracks and I – um, was killing it. It was awesome. It was a track called Vertigo in Wellington. It was going really, really well. <laughs> and I um, uh, remember going down off this jump um, at the end of it, and I, I sort of attacked it and landed sort of badly. And I thought, ah, you know, I was just upset with myself. I thought, you know, arrogantly and with plenty of ego, I was thinking, oh, well, I could probably do this better if I add some pace, if I hit it with a bit more speed. So um, I decided to come down the second time and it was, it wasn't too big a drop. It was probably something like one and a half, two meter drop. So I'm rolling down this hill and I thought, oh, well, let's add some extra pace. And that's exactly what I did. And the problem was that that, that stage is I think in, in reflection, I was probably with that extra pace leading too far forward and I remember coming off the jump and there's that feeling of dread where you're, I think I was about 45 degrees slowly moving upside down thinking, you know, it's funny, it happens in a split second, but you still have time to think it. Yeah. Thinking, oh, this isn't going to go well, down well. Yep. And um, I remember 
I must have blacked out just for a few seconds and then woke up on my back um, and just had this insane pain down my arm and then sitting up and and then sort of, you know, you sort of hyperventilate because you sort of probably wind yourself and you panic a bit. There was no one else around. The sun was um, close to setting. It's probably, I don't, I don't know what time it was. And um, anyway, I couldn't move my left arm. And I remember looking at my left arm and there was this big lump on it. And I thought, oh, damn it, I've broken my arm. So I phoned my wife and said, um, okay, hey, look, I've broken my arm. Um, you know, I'm going to head to the hospital now, just letting you know sort of thing. And then I sort of realized that whenever the the most curious thing happened, whenever the wind blew and the hairs moved on my arm, I got the sharpest pain um, in my arm. It was so, so painful. And I remember thinking, that doesn't make any sense. You know, what is going on? And um, so anyway, so I was walking away after the sort of the accident. I was wheeling my bike down the hill. I had that, by that stage, phoned a mate of mine to come and pick me up to drive me to the hospital because I was thinking, oh, well, I can't drive. And I remember I, I slipped a little bit on the road, and then I felt my neck, my neck sort of mm. sort of sharp pain, and that's when I thought, oh, no, I hope um, my arm isn't my neck, as in I'm getting referred pain. Anyway, so I was starting to get a little bit worried, and then Andrew, a friend of mine, he sort of picked me up. We got into the car, and just on the way to the hospital, you know, going over bumps and stuff, I could start to feel my neck more and more. Um, and then um, basically by that stage, we got to the hospital, my fingers are tingling. We'd sort of tell them in the waiting room, and you know normally in the hospital you wait four to six <laughs> And they said, hey. um, Straight through. Yeah, straight through. And that's when I knew that this isn't looking good. When when they don't make you wait, they just pull you straight in. Um, And then, yeah, the surgeon looked. And then I remember lying on my back looking at Mish to my left and Andrew on my right and him saying that I'd broken my neck. And it was – that was definitely the worst moment was seeing um, my future wife just – bawling her eyes out thinking what the hell are we going to do yeah and um, because they didn't know the extent of the damage yet and yeah. then Andrew, who is the biggest clown in the world he's just a real jokester mm-hmm. uh, was dead pan serious as well and then that made me something worried and yeah. yeah yeah and then anyway so speeding that up i still had this damn race to do which was how far out was it just out of interest um, so oh, by nice. that stage, it was probably two and a half months away, okay. um, maybe maybe three months. Yeah. Um, and it turned out, so I got assessed um, the next morning and then got the results back two or three days later that um, I'd broken my C6, C7 um, uh, vertebra and just the spinous processes had come off, which mean they're the little hooks on the back that sort of hold your spine strong when you yep. flex forward. Yeah. And the hooks sort of catch each other. Well, those hooks wasn't weren't there. Um, and what that meant was that I could obviously cause future damage, and we had to allow those those things to repair. So they gave me a brace, um, and I couldn't do anything. They reckon for three months, um, and then I could start sort of rehab after three or four months, <laughs> which wasn't um, going to work for your time frame. Which totally wasn't going to work for my time frame. Um, <laughs> And but saying that, I knew how lucky I was and how badly I could have come off. So, um, and I and I realised that. But I was in the hospital. I remember being so pissed off that um, after all this training, now I couldn't do the race. Um, and you know, I just hated being made to just lie there and not do anything. Mm. Um, I well, when remember. movement, you know, you identify with movement as such a big part of your life, having that taken away from you, even the threat of that taken away from you must have been quite confronting. Oh, it was horrible. And you, you, nurses used to come in and turn you at night and mm. it's just really crap. I mean, I remember now being rebellious in my own way and I, I, you, I lost the ability to pee lying down because you go sort of numb, Yeah, lying down so much. And so I remember 
thinking, screw this, and actually holding my neck and getting up at night and tiptoeing into the bathroom and <laughs> and, and climbing back in bed and pretending that I had peed. And, <laughs> but I think, I mean, such a stupid thing to do because I could have hurt myself, but I think in reflection you do it because you think, screw everyone, I, I'm not going to just lie here sort of thing. I was yeah. that yeah. angry. Um, anyway, so so fast-forwarding, I, I kept on going, getting put onto these doctors, and they kept on saying, oh, well, that's good. Come back next week, you know, and I had to get these weekly assessments. And they all kept on saying three or four months, three or four months, and I thought, you know, I've got to figure out a way to speed this up because I really, you know, I, I really – we're – been raising money for charity we had this race to do so i went through a good a colleague we have dr ruth hyatt and i asked her advice and she said look i'm going to put you with a, a specialist andy megan and um he's going to help you through and we're going to we're going to see if potentially there's a loophole here and her being a sports doctor means they've got extra insight into the sort of stuff so yeah. i spoke to andy and he said look, um, it's been eight weeks now, um, you have to keep it on. He said, but maybe in two weeks we could start looking at taking it off. And I said, um, you know, okay. And so I came back sort of the following week or the week after and I said to him, look, can I take it off? And he said, look, it's 50-50, you can do some damage. Um, but you know, if you look after it, you might be okay. And by that stage, I sort of had a month before um, we sort of had to leave and fly off to Morocco. Yeah. So I now hadn't trained for sort of two, two and a half months and just sort of vegging out lying there. I'd been going to the gym um, by that stage, just sitting on the stationary bike and doing something to keep active. Um, which people always used to look at me pretty weird. You've got this guy in a brace. Um, yeah on the leg press and cycle trying to, <laughs> but I knew that, um, I, I knew what was going to happen. I knew I was going to get this brace off. And when I had to start, I just had to jump right back into training. Yeah. So I, um, took the brace off and Mish and I, uh, we flew to Nelson by that stage and I just created a one month program where I, um, and you would never do this with anyone, anyone uh, but i just thought i had to get up the fitness so i decided to run every second day and increase my mileage by 10 percent every second day for a month and so um by the time uh after about a month i was running 35 40ks in a training session yep and i was super burnt out but then knew that hey i could that was the best i could do and um, then we flew off to to Morocco um, to do the race. Um, and so when I arrived in Morocco, sort of I remember being all on the start line thinking, you know, you're with some of the fittest runners in the world. It's pretty intimidating. There's about 1,100 of them that year. And um, just freaking out. I remember just thinking, holy shit, you know, these, <laughs> these guys have all – Just out of interest, how, how, what is the distance um, covered in the in the marathon? Um, so that, yeah, I think we did 240 K in the sand. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, but it varies between 230 and 250 K yeah. every year they change, they change where you go and they change the route. So it changes the distance. Yeah. And um, what sort of temperatures are you talking? Um, so our, our coolest day was maybe about 40 yeah. degrees and then <laughs> Celsius, oh, yeah, yeah, Celsius, and then our hottest day was about fifty-five, oh, yeah. fifty-four, fifty-five. So a, a couple of challenges there. <laughs> yeah, so so you know, going through this race, or you know, we had days where I remember on that fifty-five degrees Celsius day, I kid you not, but I went through about eighteen, twenty liters of water, and wow. uh, we were we were taking in salt tablets to hold the water yeah. in. The electrolytes, yeah. Yeah, and wow. we, I mean, I didn't pee for two or three days afterwards. Um, wow. But, you know, fast forward, you know, we we got through, Willie and I, we did the race. Um, I remember 
um, having probably the probably one of besides getting married and having the birth of my <laughs> child, yeah. having one of the greatest experiences of my yeah. life. Awesome little Leo. Yeah, awesome little Leo. Yep. Um, and you know, I just set out on that final day. The final day was a marathon, and um, we. I just thought, you know what, I've made it through five or six days here. I've got, I want to just prove to myself, I just want to leave again, just leave it all out there. I just want to yeah. end everything. Yeah. Um, and I remember out of a thousand people that year, I came about 35th. Yeah. Um, and That's I was, pretty amazing considering that journey. Yeah, totally, totally. And I remember it was that whole psych- psychology of having nothing to lose. Yeah. Um, and thinking uh, it's, I've already won. So I might as well just win some more yeah. and just spend it all. Um, and I remember there's nothing, I'll never forget that last 10 minutes. I remember running down, I could see the finish line in the distance. Um, and I was just, I was just, te- I didn't even realize it. Well, I did sort of, but there were just tears just rolling down my face yeah. for the whole yeah. time. Um, just realizing, you know, like, there would have been people who had won that race, um, but I don't know if there was anyone who. Well, you run, you won your own race, right? <laughs> I I felt like I'd won, had won the whole thing, and I remember just crossing the line and just like fell on the race organizer and just yeah, they sort of had to. I was a mess, and they sort of had to like haul me off and because I was taking up so much time and I was yeah. remember just weeping to this guy saying, Oh, it was so hard. This was so hard. Yeah, it was just this absolute mess. But, yeah. you know, to be truly, I mean, that is definitely one time in my life where I could say I was truly psychologically, emotionally and spiritually and physically spent literally yeah. nothing, yeah. nothing left in the tank. And that, and that felt amazing knowing wow. that, at least at one time in my life, I'd really, really, truly given it, truly a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. F- firstly, amazing effort, man. Well done. <laughs> I love that story. Um, yeah. Secondly, I don't know if anyone else listening feels like this as well, but I feel like running the Sahara Desert Ultra Endurance mar- Marathon. Call me crazy. <laughs> so I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people through that. But um, thirdly, I just want to touch on this really quick. Um, what would you? I think people listening to this will probably go, okay, I'm going to throw myself into something. I'm going to train as hard as I possibly can. But, you know, I know you quite well and I know how much you value recovery as well and also understanding that total load with the rest of your life. So I just want to make sure, and I know that you'll support me in this, that you're not recommending people go and blast themselves day in, day out to try and get these things done because I'm sure you would have done everything in your power to harness that recovery mechanism too am i right yeah yeah so yeah so that's the that's the key is is when i um when i did this um race i mean you look i i i think overall over the total race i came about 50th um and and if a guy who can break his neck and not do much training before the race do that, then surely doesn't that underline the fact that I probably went in far more recovered than the rest of the people. Yeah. And that was a multi-day endurance competition. So why on earth would I go in um, overtrained, tired, fatigued, slightly injured? (laughs) Um, Why would I do that? And I think that's what, that's what people do. They, they do too much volume. They do too many Ks the um, recovery techniques are poor. The nutrition is what they've been led yeah, to believe. Yes, good, good for them, but it's all processed. Yep. Um, and and although it works in a lab, it doesn't work for their health. Um, and so and so when they when they do this to their body over years, they ended up slowly. I mean, I saw it in that race, and I've seen it in countless races I've done. We. They, you look at you look at those people and you can see it. You can see it. They, their eyes on shiny. Their, their, their skin doesn't look good. Um, they look like almost. Uh, this is probably an extreme example, but like a concentration camp victim. Yeah. No, uh, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, they're gaunt. They look tired. They. 
Yeah. I mean, not hey, they've probably got amazing mental strength and fortitude. Yeah, it's been at the sacrifice of of the of the yeah. um, physical makeup. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, my whole philosophy since has been, you know, go in fit, really, really fit. No one's saying you shouldn't be fit and conditioned, um, but but almost go in slightly undertrained. Yeah. Uh, allow for that last five percent of training to be on the day in the event. Mm. You can so that you know when it really counts. You can dig down and and get a little bit more of that resource, the stuff that you need. Yeah. Because if you're going in with your tank half empty, yeah. You, um. I mean, the the rest is history. It doesn't matter what you want to do by that stage, and that's how a lot of people do, and they pull out or yeah. they have a result. Well, I- I know that you would have been, you know, getting your regular massage, your foam rolling, doing some mobility work, probably some three D work as well. Um, oh, you know, some, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, at the time, I was getting, I'll, just to underline it, I was getting a ninety minute um, body work session. I was um, in the sauna. I was swimming. Uh, my yeah. nutrition was exceptional. I was having. Deer antler, goji berries. Um, mm. I was doing lots of like. Um, Were you doing sp- MSM as well? Is that right? Uh, I was doing MSM powder so yeah. that I was absorbing more nutrients. I was mm. uh, living and breathing um, good nutrition, and because I knew it needed to speed up my yeah. recovery, well, you have to control all of the other controllables. Eh? Exactly. So yeah. it's funny, right? Like what I realized in that what I did in a month. I could have possibly done in two, like instead of taking two years, I I, took, I did that in a month. So <laughs> funny, really, if you actually, and you and I have seen that plenty of times with the clients that we've worked with over the years, that if you cover all those bases, I mean. Amazing things happen. Amazing things happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, you and I both know Nick, um, a client of ours, or that, you know, what he's done after having his surgery. I mean, yeah. this, yep. the surgeon gave him. Yeah eight or nine months to, to uh, recover, and he did it in two months, yeah. um, really because he, he listened too, to yeah. what we talked about about nutrition and did the right training. Yeah. There's too so, many of these things to be, you know, miracles, you know, that it happens too often now. We've seen too much of it um, for it to be luck. <laughs> and that annoys me when that's said as well, by the way. Yeah. Hey, um, okay, so you've had a couple of pretty intense um, physical and mental journeys there. Yeah. So, would you like to share with uh, the listeners what tools? Uh, sorry, when should people look at pushing on, and when do you think people should back off? Maybe a couple of ideas around that. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking about this. Um, I think when it starts to only become about them. Mm, um, nice perspective. Yeah, not the people around them too. I think. Um, I remember after that race, I had I phoned my brother in South Africa, and he said, "Because um, you you really get on a mental high after achieving those things, and so you you start looking for the next event, and you feel ten foot tall and bulletproof." And I remember Brett saying to me, "Don't forget about your family." He said, "Don't." He said, "If you carry on this way, what you'll find is that you start." to live a different life and then one day you're going to look back and realize you didn't live your life with the people around you. And I think um, that's, that's, that's powerful. That's it is. And I'm so glad he gave me that advice because he really kept my feet on the ground. You know, if you've got that sort of A type of personality where you just want to achieve these things, it really does come, I've noticed again with those same sorts of people, those runners who can't stop running or those triathletes who can't stop putting in the hours, it really does come at the cost of their relationships around yeah. them. Yeah. And, and life is about more than just it, achieving a good place in a race. It's no point if no one else is standing on the finish line waiting for you. So I think you I commend people who are resilient and I commend people going out there and doing it for themselves. But it's that whole thing of the experiences of only – yeah, the experiences are only amazing if you can share them with people. Yeah. They, they become empty if you're the person doing it on your own anymore. It's quite sad even. And I think, that's when, I think that's when people need to realize um, why uh, that's when they should stop. 
Yeah. That's the difference is when it's only about them. It's not about anyone else anymore. That's so good, man. Thank you for sharing that. Um, now, we have a couple of listener questions. Um, Jess asks, um, I, can, I, I think you've kind of answered this already, but when you've been training for events and then also on the day of the event, when you're what you think is exhausted both physically and mentally, hitting your limit, what do you draw on to keep on going until the finish line? Um, I guess uh, the altruistic side of it, you know, why it's like, like you always say, Carl, it's, it's about, it's not about the what, it's about the why. Mm. And why, why the question to ask yourself in that race, you know, when you, things are start getting to get tough, why am I here? What, you know, what am I doing here? What is the, what's the point of all of this? And, and so if you can answer that question with whatever answer means something to you, that's going to be the thing that gets you through. It's going to be that race fuel that only is going to drive you and no one else because it yeah. needs to have meaning. Yeah. And I think what happens again is that people are just out there and they've almost, they might have started that way, but they, I wonder deep down whether they truly have connected. Mm with themselves because really if you look at it as a way of expressing who you are and what you have inside then they're so powerful then you can then you can complete any race and you can do it to a high degree yeah. right because yeah. that once you unlock that you've got all the energy in the world it's just mm. that the the race that, is the platform to put it out i don't think you could have answered that question any better <laughs> yeah. um heidi asks um, how does your training diet differ from your daily diet and what's your favorite event nibble? <laughs> um, well, I don't, I don't actually do um, any long events anymore. I have to be honest. And the re reason is I have, um, this is probably not going to go down well, but I don't <laughs> believe in doing, I believe that doing um, anyway, endurance based events are, too just too taxing and too damaging um your body um but that being said i what i used to do for those long events is i used to make up a um a, like a superfood cookie and it had um a little bit of coconut oil it had raw cacao powder in there and raw cacao and like niblets yeah and i was head goat cacao nibs yep yeah, cacao nibs, sorry, and goji berries in there. Mm -hmm. And I just used to um, roll these things. I think I might have put in a little bit of LSA um, uh, flour. And then I used to just ground these things up into these tight little balls and then put them in the freezer. Mm. Um, oh, that's right. I also had some dates in it. Yeah. And um, I ground them up, rolled them up into little balls, put them all in the freezer, um, and then – during the big races, I used to find that, you know, it was something that my body could handle because it was natural. You know, it might there might have been potent forms of um, nutrition, but they were still in a natural form. Oh, absorbable and yeah, usable yeah. by the body. That's key. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't. I mean, I was looking left and right to me and a lot of people on these. Um, the gels. The gels. And yes, <laughs> I've used gels in the past in the early days. And yes, they work. But if you're in, a, in this for the long haul and you don't want to have mm. um, gut issues out of all of this, then then why would you want it? Um, I mean, you can get probably the same, if not more, nutrition from something like you just said. I, I just I think about those ingredients there, and I go, "Wow, some great fats, some you know, some good carbohydrates, some easily, some good fiber, and a huge amount of you know antioxidants and phytonutrients that'll help you know combat any of that inflammation." That sounds like a pretty powerful little combo. Yep. And, and the other thing is, you know, you think you're putting that in there. So now let's say you, it's a training session or let's say it's a multi-day event. Surely you want nutrition in there. That's mm. going to be restoring your body systems. It's not just pure energy. Yes, I love that. It's not just fuel. Eh? It's not just fuel. And that's the thing. I think we get lost in this whole thing of I need calories. Well, you're going to get calories anyway. So you might as well just make sure they, they're nutritious calories. Yeah. Great, yeah. I love that. Now, Greg, well, I've got a, the final question. It's a question I ask every single guest on the show. 
and that's if you could inject every single person on the planet with one piece of information, an idea, or even a question, uh, what would that be? Um, if I could inject anyone on the planet with a question or an idea. Yeah, or a quote or just something for them to think about. I heard, I guess, the thing I liked, which is something, I, it's funny, it's that whole uh, primary and recency principle, so I remember it, but I was listening to um, Tim Ferriss's podcast and he was interviewing Ray Dalio, who is yeah. this famous investor. And I was, what he said was his formula for life is that um, pain plus reflection equals growth. And I, I reckon that's it, man. I reckon that's, that's the key, right? Like, and what he's saying, what, he's, what he means by that is that it can be any sort of pain. It's not a, just a physical pain. A, a psychological and emotional pain could be addressing a relationship in your life or yep. something that you, you've been putting off but you know you need to deal with. So putting up with that pain is important for the growth. Yep. The reflection comes in the time that you give yourself to think about the pain you went through mm. and that's important. And that's where so, the learning comes in. That's where the learning comes in. So that you go through the pain, whatever it might be. Let's say if I look at Leo, my little boy, um, we were down at the river the other day. What was the pain? He walked away. We were at this river. He walked all the way up this river. He was stumbling, falling. He was about 100 meters away. His feet were hurting. He's got bruises on his legs and he's looking for daddy to come and get him. His arms are out. He's whining. Okay. For me to let him grow and learn, I the last thing I'm going to do is walk over and pick him up. So I just sat there and let him deal with it. He got through the painful situation. He eventually got back to me. We then jumped in the water, or he jumped in the water. He played for a bit, had a couple laughs, and it's experiences like that where if you can go through a little bit of hardship mm. and then give yourself just time to reflect back on whatever hardship you were able to give yourself, yeah. that's where growth happens. Yeah. And I think that if, as long as for me, I mean, I think I'm never going to forget that he said it in such a simple way because I think that I honestly think that is the key to just having these meaningful and awesome experiences in life is mm. – being able to push yourself through some sort of anguish, some sort of pain, reflect on it, and get the growth from it. That's um, I don't I don't think we could think of a, a better way to to round out. Actually, <laughs> that's pretty much what this has been about. If we think about these, uh, you know, the boxing in the Sahara Desert uh, experiences, you know, pain plus reflection equals growth, and you know that's led to a lot of wisdom that you share with your clients and um, you know, with HealthFit, with the staff and um the members and also that, you know, the corporate work we do as well. And that's why people find you so inspiring, I think. So thanks, Greg, for joining us on the show. Um, quickly, could you tell people where they can find you? Yep. Um, yep, I'm on Facebook. I um, Otherwise, I try to um, generally – I'm not on Facebook as much as I should be. I try to, with any social media, I do it with HealthFit. I like the fact that people can, and obviously, Carl, you're a <laughs> director of HealthFit as well, but I try to, um, I like how HealthFit is our, represents a part of who I am and what we do. Definitely. Rather people pay attention to that than, than me. And then that way, I can, there's still a bit of an introvert to me sometimes where I like to hide away and not be the focus. Yeah. So, um, as I'm sure you do as well. So, mm-hmm. I like thing of if that if you want to find me go to Hellfit. <laughs> yeah <laughs> easy so obviously i'll post the links to that like i always do so go and visit healthfitcollective.co.nz you can find us on instagram and facebook as well greg does most of the posting for that so yeah thanks again for sharing that those amazing stories i know you've got so much more uh to share um you're a man of uh, a lot of wisdom beyond your years 
Um, and yeah, very honoured to have you on here, Greg. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, and it's it's awesome. It's I think it's really um, awesome what you do uh, in your in your podcast, and I think it's also the cool thing with being on it is I think it gives people the opportunity to, you know, it does give them that mm-hmm. time to reflect and actually grow in their own way. How often do people actually stop, sit down for an hour, and actually get to talk about um, their life and have yeah. that reflection? So yeah. thanks for giving me the opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. I'd love to have you back again. Cheers, Greg. Thanks Thanks for listening, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.